Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Church, we are into our third week of a series called God With Us, Call the Midwife. We're looking at origin stories of Jesus from each of the four Gospels, and tonight we have moved on from Matthew and Mark to Luke, one of the two Gospels that actually has a birth narrative, thanks be to God. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and who was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in bands of cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In that region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for see, I'm bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom God favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Anton Chekhov, no, not the Starfleet officer, the 19th century Russian playwright and crafter of short stories. While several of Chekhov's plays and lots of his stories are still appreciated as among the best short fiction in history, 
He's actually better known for a piece of writing advice he gave several times in his career. If you hang a loaded gun over the mantle in Act One, he said, it had better go off in Act Three. I'm paraphrasing, but the principle is clear. Beginnings are important, and good storytellers know that where you start must be directly connected to where you finish. Luke was a good storyteller. He establishes himself as a narrator commissioned by a patron to investigate the matter of a Palestinian Jew named Jesus, who might or might not have been the savior of the world. So Luke does his research, conducting interviews and collecting other people's memories and assembles them into the gospel we now call by his name. He begins with a lengthy prologue about the duly unexpected pregnancies of a young peasant named Mary and her elderly relative, Elizabeth, and then arrives at the story proper in chapter 2, chronicling with care the long-awaited birth of his main subject. And in so doing, Luke brings a few firearms of foreshadowing into view for readers who know how the story goes. As in all well-told tales, the portents are easier to see in hindsight. First, there's an emperor, in this case, Augustus, the first of the Caesars, the founder of the Roman Empire, consolidator of territories, presser of expansionist policy, author of the so-called Pax Romana. Augustus appointed reliable governors for regions he considered his own. Quirinius could be counted on to further the empire's goals in Syria, which included the province of Judea. Not to put too fine a point on it, the empire's main goal could be summarized as more. More land under its thumb, more people under its boot, more resources for its consumption, more money for its treasury. The empire was always hungry for more, and Quirinius knew how to get it. He decreed that a census of his appointed region should be taken forthwith for the purposes of taxation, Knowing how many people there were would yield increased tax revenues by drawing every silent subject out of anonymity. It should be said that we now know that Luke's placement of Joseph's family in Bethlehem due to the Quirinian census is not historically accurate. If Jesus was indeed born under the Galilean reign of Herod the Great, as Matthew contends and as most everyone agrees, this census would have been too late for the nativity. Herod died in 4 BCE. Quirinius's count didn't happen until 10 years later. If we thought Luke was aiming for maximum historical accuracy, we'd have to ding him for this dating error. He should have Googled it before he put it in the Bible. But if we grant that Luke is here setting up the story he wants to tell, placing a gun over the mantle, so to speak, maybe we could grant him and the Holy Spirit some artistic license here 
and ask why it might have seemed good to both of them to import the anachronistic census into this account of Jesus' birth. Because it would have been enough, would it not, to mention the emperor himself, to cast the shadow of Rome's occupation over the laboring mother so that the savior of the world is born under the heavy weight of a superpower? We know that this baby will not grow out of this particular vulnerability. The danger he faces from empire and emperor will indeed be borne out in his adulthood under another governor, another Caesar, about 30 years from now. But if Luke went to the trouble to put Quirinius and his money-grubbing census in the scene, let's trust his Chekhovian impulse for the moment and see what else we can find. I'm of two minds about Luke's rendering of the birth itself. While they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, he says, with none of the details I'm most interested in. When did her water break? How long did she labor? Was there room in that stable for pacing, rocking, squatting? How long did she push? How bad did she tear? Did she know any swear words? What kind of midwife was Joseph? How long till the baby latched? Did no one come to show her how? But none of these answers are in Luke's telling. He's more interested to inform us about the setting, the little town of Bethlehem, sure, AKA the city of David, but more specifically, a stall in a barn a warm home for a small collection of family livestock kept in town. The barn and its stables are not mentioned, actually, but when Mary has cleaned her newborn to her satisfaction and swaddled him tightly in scraps of cloth, Luke says she laid him in a manger, a feed trough. And there is the second firearm of Act One. Our narrator wants us to know this is not what the Holy Mother chose. It's just what was available, as they were not able to find respite in any of the guest rooms for rent in all of Bethlehem that night. Or maybe her labor intensified too fast for them to keep searching. Either way, they found refuge the way refugees do, by looking into places not meant for people and making themselves temporarily at home. It is the way of the poor in every time and every place. The ones who make shelter in doorways and alleyways and under highway overpasses or down on the banks of Village Creek that runs behind the Big Red Barn or the estimated five or six million Syrian refugees of the 21st century fleeing civil war, a violent government, and bottomless poverty, who have crossed borders to find safety for themselves and their babies into Turkey, Lebanon, Iraq, Egypt, or the countless ones who have drowned trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea into Europe. If Luke were telling Jesus' story today, perhaps we would grant him license to place the laboring mother and her not-yet-husband among a crowd of hungry, desperate, terrified travelers looking for a place to safely spend the night when it is so clear they can offer nothing in return.
And perhaps then we would see more clearly what Luke means to show us here, something that our cherished collections of dainty nativity displays have obscured, that the Holy Family was seriously poor, not in an aw shucks, hard scrabble memoir kind of way, but in a dangerous, desperate, distressing kind of way. Not in an isn't it amazing what the human spirit can overcome by hard work and determination kind of way, but in an enduring, exhausting, entrenched kind of way. In no way romantic, colorful, or cute, despite the precious figurines decorating my piano. A couple months into pandemic, a few of us read a novel together. The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd, highly recommend. It's a story obliquely about the adult Jesus narrated by his fictional wife, Anna. Don't get hung up on the wife part, just read it and shed some tears for the serious suffering that accrued to him and everyone who loved him. Kidd's redeemed imagination explored the consequences for Jesus' family of his leaving them to pursue his divine calling, mother, brothers, sisters, wife, depriving them all of his carpentry trade and earnings as they were dirt poor and quite dependent on every person in their household doing their part to keep the roof above their Nazarene heads. I, it had not occurred to me that his family was very likely still poor all those years after the barn birth. But isn't that the way poverty works? That it's not seasonal, like being broke or unemployed or cash-strapped or even declaring bankruptcy can be. Poverty is multi-generational, deeply ingrained, and regressive. If Jesus' family was very poor the night he was born, they were very likely still very poor the day he died. And just like that, there's nothing cute about that feed trough as a stand-in for a crib. And then there are those shepherds, the field hands who supervise sheep, likely not their own. They have one job, return to their employer the same number of sheep they're sent out with, only fatter. Find more grass, watch out for dogs and wolves, leave no lamb behind, and whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Nobody aspires to a career in shepherding. It's what you do when there's nothing else you can do. And behold, it's to these humble laborers that the angel of the Lord appears, announcing the birth of the Messiah that they and all their kin have waited for all this time. A Messiah from King David's lineage, a leader to set them free from empire's cruel grasp, that fist that squeezes till their last coins jingle into Roman coffers. Will they run the risk of losing livestock to go and see if it's true? Will they draw straws to see who has to stay behind to watch the flocks? 
In any case, a plurality of manual laborers shows up in the middle of the night to take a gander at the newborn. And here I wonder, if Mary and Joseph and newborn Jesus had been safely swaddled in the comforts of a respectable rental, a clean, well-lit space with soft, warm blankets, say, instead of rags for wrapping a baby in, with a proper bed for mama's laying in, a proper door for keeping out the cold, and the riffraff, would the shepherds have ever gotten near enough to count the fingers and toes of their newborn Lord? Is it an accident, I'm asking, that Jesus' origins make possible the inclusion of these, his first admirers, like a church for spiritual refugees, maybe, that knows how impossibly hard it is for some to cross the threshold of a stained glass sanctuary. Do they meet in a barn by choice because it makes the welcome wider or because they can't afford anything more respectable? Maybe it's both. Here's what our Chekhovian analysis of Luke's beginning has shown us then. Jesus' entire life, from beginning to theoretical end, can be understood in terms of economics. Or, to quote Deep Throat, not the porn film, but the until recently anonymous source who broke the Watergate scandal and brought down the last president who tried to steal an election, follow the money. Indeed, Luke's gospel has more stories about money than the other three combined. He's transparent about where Jesus gets money for his ministry, namely from the sugar mamas, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and several others who came along and picked up the tab. See Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. He's distressed by the wealth gap between the very rich and the very poor and reports Jesus' own insistence that God has in mind to one day reverse the economic fortunes that fall to each in this life. He's mindful, always, of how Jesus and his first followers are a threat to the economic status quo in his second volume of research, the book of Acts, Luke will detail how dangerous it is for gospel preachers to disrupt the industry of any town or merchant, but how inevitable it is that the good news of God's reign overturns the tables of those who will do anything, sell anything, exploit anyone to make a buck or a shekel or a denarius. I hope you already know about Reverend Dr. William Barber, the activist Christian pastor who heads the Poor People's Campaign, which is itself an extension of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's work on behalf of the poor in this country. In 2018, Reverend Barber visited Lowndes County, Alabama. He was invited into the home of Pamela Rush, a trailer whose walls were rusted through in places she had rags stuffed into holes to keep the possums out, she said. Mrs. Rush warned her guests to watch their step on a floor rotted to flimsy softness in places. Dim lights, no ventilation, mold encroaching in one of the tiny bedrooms, her asthmatic daughter sleeping with her in the other, her son taking the sofa 
for a bed. And always, for as long as anyone can remember, the raw sewage spilling into their yard, Lowndes County doesn't provide wastewater infrastructure for homeowners. And though Mrs. Rush kept up her $113,000 mortgage with 10% APR all paid up, she could not borrow any more to put in a septic tank. Lowndes County has experienced the highest rate of COVID-19 infection in Alabama this year. Pamela Rush died of the virus on July 3rd, leaving her two kids like refugees looking for a safe place to live out the rest of their lives because poverty is regressive. The Poor People's Campaign continues to advocate for economic justice in this country, calling on Christians to understand that the Messiah whose birth we are celebrating this season was himself born into poverty and grew up in poverty and thus welcomed the poor, not as a noble gesture of philanthropy, but as a genuine fact of solidarity. The savior of the world understood from hard experience that there's nothing good or right or true or beautiful or necessary about entrenched multi-generational poverty. Now the easy takeaway for us from Jesus' birth in a barn would be a motivation for Christmas time charity. And that would be an okay outcome tonight that we each might be inspired to open our hearts and our Venmo to food banks and LGBTQ advocacy orgs and UNICEF, which is bidding for COVID vaccines on behalf of developing countries that cannot afford to go up against empires like ours in the pharmaceutical auction of the century. If you're so moved, do it tonight. Do it before you forget. But I think it's even bigger than that, Christians. I think we are supposed to understand in a much bigger way that Christianity fucks with our money. We are meant to contemplate that if we were not Christian, get this, we'd probably have more of it. We wouldn't have these pesky constraints about how maybe we ought to use our gifts to do some good in this world, thus choosing jobs that take more out of us than they give back. I'm looking at you, teachers. We wouldn't tithe or give or donate or share unless and until we were absolutely sure that our own needs were already covered, leaving charities and churches to make do with our lousy leftovers. Side note. If you wait until you have enough before you give any away, you'll never get there. Trust me on that one. If we weren't so in love with this squalling baby born in squalor, we wouldn't be so transparent with each other about our abundance when we're feeling flush or our need when we're falling behind. We wouldn't make safe space for people to confess unemployment or unmanageable debt, or the lamentable lack of a rainy day fund when life is pouring out problems you can't afford to solve. It's risky, you know. If a church gets a reputation for financial generosity to broke people, 
or even poor people, well, what kind of people do you think that church is going to attract? Think about it. If we didn't care so much about Jesus, infant lowly, infant holy, we wouldn't care so much about each other. And the reality that church has or ought to have an economy of its own where nobody goes hungry and nobody doesn't have a place to stay and nobody has to feel a moment's shame about being right where they are. Hey, those night shift shepherds found the Messiah in a manger, just like the angels said. There's not a hint of shame for any of them in Luke's telling, not the baby, not the parents, not a single one of their guests. If you put the empire and its ruthless taxation in Act 1, if you present your protagonist's impoverished provenance at the outset, if you invite working poor characters who never appear again but suggest who will hurry to his side in chapters to come, well, you have set the stage for a salvation that is more economic than spiritual. Or maybe Luke is saying, there is nothing more spiritual than money and what it says about the Savior who was born and died without any of it, and ultimately, what it says about all of us. That is, if Chekhov was right. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to galileochurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal, or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.